3CR broadcasts on the stolen land of the Woiwurrung and the Bunurong peoples of the Eastern Kulin Nation. We pay our respect to their elders, past, present and emerging, and we acknowledge that a treaty was never signed and that sovereignty was never ceded. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning. Good morning. Ooh, unison. <laughs> <laughs> so good to have you back, Alice. Yeah, it's so good to be back in the studio. It's been, I think, like five weeks now or four weeks. It feels like it's been ages, but yeah, it's great to see you guys again. And you've yeah, been all over the back. place in the meantime? Yeah, I had a little bit of a trip, went to New South Wales, um, went to the Snow Mountains, Sydney for a little bit. Um, so yeah, just had a bit of a road trip. Went to see Hamilton in Sydney because oh, I'm a bit excellent. of a theatre nerd. <laughs> and that was on my list for quite a long time. So, yeah, yeah I got to go. Oh, every one of them. <laughs> yeah, it was so good. Um, yeah, it's, yeah, it was great. It's just something that I had really wanted to do when I was back in the UK as well, but never quite got the chance. Um, the tickets are just ridiculously expensive. So you have to save for like three years just to be able to go um so yeah i'm really glad that i got to see it so that was great and then yeah come back and just chilled out for a bit but it feels like definitely time that i was back at 3cr it's been too long <laughs> and how have you guys been since when i've been away well, i think we've held down the fort yeah. <laughs> but we're looking forward to uh, some of your fantastic interviewing skills what what oh, were you, uh, you. bringing to the show this morning well today i'm going to be another theater focused show um or interview should i say so i'm going to be speaking to nazari dickerson who is at la mama theater and um she's part of the year on boy festival and her theater production nyonk giver of life is all about this family of women, the Tannin women, and the intergenerational resilience of them. And so we're going to speak to her today about how she, yeah, wrote, produced, and directed the show. And I think it's going to be a really great interview, so I can't wait to speak to her. And that's going to be 8 o'clock. Fantastic. It's always so good to hear from La Mama Theatre, always doing amazing things. They do the best stuff around. They really do. And they've got heaps more on, especially with the Year and Boy Festival. And, yeah, they're just constantly working on new productions with with um, people that are either just starting out or who are doing something a bit different. So, yeah, we've got all the time in the world for La Mama Theatre. <laughs> and what else have we got on today? Yeah, so first up, I've got a bit of audio um, from Mexican journalist and novelist Fernanda uh, Melchol, um, who spoke at the Wheeler Centre last year about her book, um, Hurricane Season, um, and it deals with femicide in Mexico and the complexity of unwanted teen pregnancy. Wow. <laughs> and what time can we expect that? Uh, so I reckon we'll do that first up, maybe around quarter past seven. Fantastic. And then... Uh, shortly after that, we'll be hearing from the excellent Idwin, uh, an interview about the law council, uh, law councils, uh... the law council. That's uh, all that anyone needs to know. <laughs> I need to. Uh... 
Yeah, so um, Eidwin spoke with Dr. Jacoba Brash um, from the Law Council discussing the 2020 Respect at Work report and the federal government's recent announcement of its broad support for the 55 recommendations of the report. Uh, you took the words right out of my mouth. <laughs> and there's just a content warning on that, that we'll, we'll, that it will be discussing um, sexual harassment. Uh, so if that's something that's going to uh, be triggering for you, maybe you uh, want to tune out of the show from about 7.30 onwards um, for about 15 minutes. Uh, and to start the show off this morning, uh, here are the news headlines. More than 60 refugees and asylum seekers transferred to Australia from Manus and Nauru under the Medevac laws in 2019, and another nine who were brought by the Australian government in February 2020 after the Medivac laws were appealed, have written to the Minister for Home Affairs, Karen Andrews, to request that the Minister uses her discretionary powers to release them from closed detention. A group of Wangan and Jagalingu traditional owners and their supporters began the tour to Carmichael yesterday morning, a five-day, 105-kilometre bicycle ride to Adani's Carmichael mine site in central Queensland. Traditional owner Cody McAvoy said, This bike will bring attention to the, the destruction Adani is currently doing on Wangan and Jangalingu country. It will also highlight our culture by going to sites like Twin Hills and the Beliando River. Talking about the significance of these sites is what connects us to country. Talangi uh, logging was halted yesterday over concerns for threatened species. Talangi is the latest site for the continued community confrontation with Vic Forests. Yesterday, protesters walked into the state forest in Talangi to stop logging. This is the fourth week of protester disruptions of this logging operation. Last year, a Supreme Court injunction was placed over this area to prohibit logging due to the high density of fire-affected threatened species detected. Now that the injunction has lapsed, Vic Forests have moved in once more. There is no government plan for the recovery of the threatened species that were devastated in the black summer uh, bushfires, yet logging of their habitat continues. Outrage continues to build against the Morrison government's decision to criminalise returning from India. Uh, the move has been described as extreme, heavy-handed and disproportionate, while Foreign Minister Mar Marissa Payne assures the flight suspension is not racist but based on medical advice. Meanwhile, India's government is facing mounting pressure to impose a nationwide lockdown as the coronavirus overwhelms hospitals around the country. Yesterday, there were 3.25 million active cases in India, with nearly 360,000 new infections in the previous 24 hours. In contrast, Australia recorded 11 new cases yesterday, all in hotel quarantine. Health advice continues to advise regular hand washing, 1.5 metre social distancing, and getting tested if you have any symptoms. Those were today's news headlines. It's 7.10am and you're listening to 3CR Breakfast on 3CR Radical Radio 855 on the AM dial. Stay tuned for more analysis of today's stories after Better Things by Kian. <laughs> Get this 
Keon with Better Things. And I just wanted to quickly mention an event happening today, uh, which is the Rise and Detention Student Walkout. Um, So today at 1pm, students will be gathering around the State Library in Melbourne. Uh, So Rise ex-detainees are calling for students across Australia to take action against successive Australian governments for their humane treatment of refugees in Australian-run offshore and onshore mandatory detention centres. Uh, So students will be walking out of their classrooms and campuses at 1pm Melbourne time. Um, So wherever you are, hold banners that read End Detention and hold one minute of silence for those who survived and who have lost their lives in Australian-run detention centres. And next up, we're going to listen to some audio um, from Mexican journalist and novelist Fernanda Melchor. Um, So Fernanda is the author of the powerful English-language novel Hurricane Season, which was shortlisted for the 2020 International Booker Prize. The book deals with the issue of femicide in Mexico and the complexity of unwanted teen pregnancy. Fernanda was part of a conversation on translated literature hosted by the Wheeler Center in 2020. Uh, The discussion was led by Rowana Gosalves, who introduced the segment. And thank you to the Wheeler Center for sharing this audio with us. My name is Rowana Gonsalves. I am an Indian-Australian writer living in Sydney on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. Fernanda Melchor was born in 1982 in Veracruz, Mexico. She is widely recognized as one of the most exciting new voices of Mexican literature. In 2018, she won the Penn Mexico Award for Literary and Journalistic Excellence. And in 2019, the German Anna Siegers Priests and the Inter- International Literature Award for Hurricane Season, which has also been longlisted for the US 2020 National Book Awards, Translated Literature, and shortlisted for the 2020 International Booker Prize. Um, her book, Hurricane Season, has been described as a murder mystery set in a Mexican village amidst abject poverty. And that's the book we're going to talk about um, in this conversation. As I was reading, I couldn't help but think that the most radical representation of womanhood, the most radical feminism, is a feminism that centers on self-love. And what can be more radical than a woman who loves herself, a woman who has no need for external validation? And of course, uh, this might be a utopia. And in your work, Fernanda, the character of La Chabella, to some extent, even Norma, to some extent, made me wonder what it would be like to live in a world where women loved themselves. 
Um, and the other radical representation of womanhood and feminism is an intersectional one of feminism where class and race cannot be separated from the struggles being endured by women. And I was wondering if we might begin our conversation with these ideas of self-love and class. And so I wanted to put to you, Fernanda, um, how did you grapple with creating characters that love or detest themselves um, and how the material conditions of their lives impact upon their choices? Yes, I, um, when I first started writing Hurricane Season, I had the global idea of um, wanting to, wanted to have like really strong women characters. This is like a personal depth I had with myself because at first, uh, my first novel uh, is about the life of uh, four boys. It's a, it's a day in the life of four Mexican boys uh, who uh, really young men who don't think they have a future. So that's that's a story I wanted to tell. But at the end, when I, I that novel was published in 2013, and at the end I felt a little bit of a dissatisfaction because I thought that I lacked like really strong uh, women characters, you know. So I kind of. Uh, thought and, and promised to myself that I will develop that in my next novel, that it had to do, uh, it had to be like a really conscious effort uh, of me to, to really work with, with women because the, the characters in the first novel were like secondary, like they're, they, they wouldn't pass the Bechdel test, you know? So I really had to do an effort and it, it wasn't an effort at all. Uh, I think the story of hurricane season really has to do a lot with women. Uh, not only with these strong uh, characters, but also because the whole structure of the novel is based on um, on this sort of uh, uh, women gossiping around and, and, and not, not seeing gossip as, as something negative, but as a sort of form of communication, you know, a respectable form of communication and also a very aesthetic form of communication, you know, because gossiping has uh, really formal structures and it has these poetic stances that we cannot uh, put aside. And I really wanted to uh, take uh, gossiping and turn it into a literary form. So I had like, you know, uh, to, to work with, uh, the story had to have like strong women. And at the end, you know, even if, uh, even if the novel is about uh, a murder, uh, a crime, the heart of the novel is is the is the experience of women, because none of this will have happened if uh, Norma hadn't taken a choice. Norma is a is a really young girl who finds herself in trouble, finds herself pregnant at 13 years old. So she does what she does to try to survive, and and at first it's really difficult to hear her voice because it's like her mind is made up from her mother's words. And I think that's something that happens with a lot of, uh, of us, of women, that we have in our minds like the words of society, like our mothers, our family, our, uh, our values. And it, it is so hard as a woman to find yourself, your own voice, to find your own mind. And I think th that's what Hurricane Tison is, is about too. And Chavela is a really strong character. Um, 
I don't know if her uh, media, if her, if her means to an end, it's uh, are moral because it's a woman. We're talking about a woman who who realized that um, uh, prostituting another woman is better than prostituting herself. But it, so it's kind of a exploiting a, a, a medium to an end. But she at least has this conscious of who she is. And she's really clear about it, and and she has these uh, ideas and these um, uh, dreams and desires that get to be accomplished, uh, contrary to what happens to a lot of women in La Matosa. So mm. maybe she's not someone to admire, but at least it's a it's a really strong uh, representation of women. Yes, um, I totally agree. There are so many things that you just said that I would love to pick up on, uh, particularly that idea of the way the novel is structured around that idea of gossip, uh, which comes to really strongly um, through your formal uh, decisions that you've made as you're constructing the work um, in terms of the kind of breathless narration where sometimes it's hard to know who is speaking. And I think that adds to that sense of the almost inescapable conditions, the material conditions of the, that these characters have to endure, which make them the kind of people that they are. Um, so while some of the characters might not be likable, we question their morality. That is only a temporary questioning and a temporary judgment for me as a reader, because I can see that they actually have no other choice. I would have probably done the same had I been in their particular positions. So I think what you've done structurally with the work is just uh, complements the content that you're trying to render on the page uh, in a very stunning way. I was very, very moving and uh, quite confronting as well to read. So very beautiful work. Um, Hurricane season is all about, you know, these really young women who are constantly getting being um, violated and having to take care of these unwanted pregnancies. Not all of them, but there are a, a lot of characters in that book who are referenced as such. Hurricane Season, in fact, is also a book that, that uh, talks a lot about young men and about young men's hate for women also. Uh, it's a book about, that talks about homophobia that uh, talks about what it's like to desire something that you hate. Uh, it's a book that talks about mm, uh, about also what it is like to be really young and thinking that you have no future, that you live in a country that offers nothing to you, in a society that doesn't really care what's going to be uh, of your life. And Growing up as a girl in Mexico, in a very uh, machist society, in a very misogynistic society, I grew up trying to understand why men do the things they do. And I grew up also trying to understand why women, why we hate each other and ourselves. And I think all these questions really, really came up after I, um, I became a mother. I'm not, I, I have no children of my own, but I, uh, during six years, I uh, raised uh, my stepdaughter, Hannah. Uh, she was six when I met her, and then I left, I left uh, 
the relationship when I was when she was 12. So I was a mother for six years and that totally changed me because I thought, I think that I just understood that I, I never wanted my daughter to hate herself as a woman or I never wanted her to think that because she's a woman, she's a second class citizen. So that really pushed me into feminism. That pushed me to read more women. That pushed me to make an effort to to understand uh, these kind of things. And and normally I will say that my writing is not precisely uh, well. Most most people wouldn't wouldn't agree that to that because most people say that I write about reality. That I'm a really social you know uh, a writer. But in fact I'm just talking about what I grew up. I'm talking about my family too, and I'm talking always about uh, uh, the things I heard and lived when I grew up. So it's not always a matter of, um, I don't think literature has the right to be pamphletary. I think that to make a point about something about reality, you have to tell the story and you have to tell a story aesthetically. And that's, those are the things that, that, uh, worry me when I wrote, when I write. Fernando, that's a really interesting point you brought up, uh, in relation to your own life. So thank you for letting us into your own personal circumstances. But I can see how, as, as you said, um, some of that biographical material may have inspired some of the writing of the characters in your book, particularly that relationship between La Chabella and Norma, where they're not biologically mother and daughter, but um, there's that sense of um, responsibility or taking care of um, a much younger woman who's not re- who is not your daughter. I think it's so interesting and and. Because in hurricane season is there there is a, the desire of of having children of giving to birth but at but at the same time there's the uh unspeakable horror of being a mother. The novel talks about what it is like to uh be a, uh, to become a mother without the desire of uh, of of uh becoming one and I think that's also it's as we say in Spanish is the el, el, los dos lados de la misma moneda is the the both sides of the same coin. I, I, I don't know. I, I was inspired in, in at least in Norma's story, but I think you can uh, you can see it also in 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 some other characters in the book, secondary characters that always are talking about uh, the, the witch's mother, for example. You get to feel that she never wanted the, 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 the young witch to be born. Uh, Louise, me mother, that it, she even tried to get rid of him and, and she couldn't. So she ended up having him, but he's, he's an unwanted child. And, and Norma herself, her mother was always like uh, using, uh, using children and, 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 and having daughters and sons just to keep uh, a man by her side and failing to do so, you know? And uh, also Chabela uh, and, and, and Norma herself, who's pregnant at 13 years old. For me, it was something that I really wanted to talk about. In Mexico, we are right now fighting for the right to legally interrupt pregnancies because uh, uh, right now, only in Mexico City, it's possible to voluntarily interrupt uh, a pregnancy. 
And it's a reality that's uh, really hurtful for a lot of women, young women, because Mexico has number one, it's first place in teen pregnancy in the world, teen and children pregnancy, you know, children having children. So I, I remember when I was 12 years old uh, at school, they took us to a school trip, to a field trip in a hospital. And we went to a hospital and, you know, a doctor gave us a tour to the hospital. So we got to know what happens in there. And there was a maternity ward where children are, are born. And a doctor uh, told us that in that maternity ward, there were two patients that were our age and having children. There were two girls of 12 years old having children. And I was so shocked to hear that, that, I don't know, I just kept in my, in, it was hidden in the back of my mind. And it was something that really worries me, you know, like being at sixth grade and thinking I can be pregnant, I can be pregnant right now. And nobody will do anything to prevent that, you know, or to protect me as a child. And it's so worrisome. And so for me, it's so, I really wanted to write about that because I wanted people to empathize with these young girls because in a machist society like Mexico is like, yes, of course, those girls got pregnant because they are, you know, horrible stuff. They will say they, they uh, asked for it or what were they doing? you know, at that time and wearing that uh, skirt and they will say horrible things just to uh, justify the unjustifiable, that is children having children, you know? And I just wanted people to empathize. And maybe if I created a character like Norma, like, you know, like this sweet girl who didn't ask for it, who was just trying to gain her mother's love, who was uh, cheated and, 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 and who was abused by her step her her stepfather? I I thought that people maybe will change her mind their mind about uh, this this uh, abortion uh, uh, laws in Mexico. Literature is not really the place for political statements, um, but I do think that literature can work on each person, changing uh, the the way they think, uh, making more human. Making, making the other uh, more human, um, empathizing. And, and it does that each person after each person. It, 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 it acts only on one person at a time. And maybe that's not really um, effective uh, in, a, in a great number, but it's effective because it touches people's hearts. I, I really want to tell stories and make people feel things. And maybe with that, people can change. I, I feel sometimes that literature, it's, it's a totally feminine place. And it has been like taken by men, you know, like, like taken in, a, in the in the institutionalized um, way. And, and now it's like, finally, it seems like the audience is interested again in stories by women when when all stories are, are we're, we're the, well, half of the planet, you know, and, and we are humanity too. But sometimes when women, when, when we write, it's not like, uh, it's not like universal. It's just women's stories. And my fight is to make women's stories also universal. That was author Fernanda Melchor speaking to Rowana Gonzalez about hurricane season. 
This was an edited segment from a conversation in October 2020 as part of the Wheeler Centre's Broadly Speaking event series, proudly supported by Christina Campbell Pretty AM and family. Uh, you can access the full audio at www.wheelercentre.com slash events slash Miko Koama Kami and Fernanda Melchor. Algorithms have become these gatekeepers to opportunity. They're already deciding who gets hired, who gets health care, how long a prison sentence someone serves. And what I didn't realize is that a lot of these algorithms haven't been vetted for accuracy. We don't even know how accurate they are. They often run on what's popular, and we all know what's popular isn't always good. And they haven't been vetted for racial bias and for gender bias. I had no idea the scope of invasive surveillance, the, the preciseness to which they can predict our behavior, and how vulnerable all of us can be to sort of predatory practices because of these algorithms. And so we need some protections in place as citizens. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio.
That was Lisa Mitchell with Coin Laundry. And next up, we're going to listen to a segment from 3CR's On Screen. So on Saturday, May 1st, um, it was International Workers' Day, or May Day, where communities around the world celebrate and acknowledge the achievements of the labour movement and the ongoing fight for labour rights around the world. So as part of 3CR's May Day broadcast, Dale from On Screen spoke with Liam Ward uh, to discuss his top picks for films which deal with workers' rights. So not many films put workers at the centre, um, but today we're going to weed out those gems and from modern mm-hmm. times to Made in Dagenham, which, which films would be on your shortlist for May Day films? Well, joining us now to share his top films to celebrate May Day is lecturer in uh, Media and Communications at RMIT, Liam Ward. Welcome to On Screen and happy May Day, Liam. Thank you, Melinda. Happy May Day to you too. <laughs> Thank you. Well, Liam, in the past you've been on the show to tell us about the films you've curated for the annual Marxist Conference, and it's great to have you back. This time we're asking you to tell us about your top films to celebrate the 1st of May today, May Day. Yes, and I'll, I'll start by making a bit of an admission here that uh, I've made a top five list, mm-hmm. and two of the five I've snuck in are not actually films, they're TV series, but I'm hoping you'll give ah. me... A bit of leeway. Yes, of course. On that one. Yes. It's worth, it's worth it. Um, I thought, well, number one, I think that is, it should be the top of everyone's list, is a great film uh, from South Korea uh, in, two, in 2014 called Cart, mm-hmm. uh, directed by Boo Ji Yong. This is a film that uh, I suspect might have snuck under many people's radar. Mm, mine too. Are you there? There you go. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't even know if we've ever had a sort of official or legal uh, release here in Australia if it has a distributor. I managed to see it uh, with a friend of mine who is obsessed with sort of South Korean pop culture, uh, and so she had access to some of the South Korean streaming services, um, and so we watched it that way. It would be worth tracking down, uh, however you can sort of get your hands on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, as I said, directed by Boo Ji Young, uh, uh, Boo has built a sort of small but important catalogue of works, you know, built sort of five-year period between 2009 and 2014, both as a screenwriter and a director. And CART is uh, really her most successful work in the sense that it's, you know, the most kind of widely acclaimed and and won a swag of awards in South Korea. It's it's based on a true story, uh, and it looks at a 512-day strike by retail workers that took place in Seoul in 2007-2008. The workers involved were almost all women, they weren't unionised before uh, the events in the film, or the events took place in real life, but the events of the film portrayed, uh, the workers weren't unionised before this strike began. And I think uh, in some of the ways that that it, it touches on uh, timely topics, I guess, of the 21st century working class, which is that um, not just the gender issues, of course, but the issues around casualisation, precarious labour, um, you know, most of, the, most of the women involved in this strike were tense and casuals and, you know, had just been kind of worked to the bone, they they clung to the hope that they would eventually get permanency. You know, and I mean, we're all familiar with the kind of carrot that get dangled in front of workers and the lies that we're told. And, of course, in this case, predictably, it was more lies. You know, they never got permanency. And, in fact, what prompted the strike in the first place uh, was that a, a bunch of them were, you know, called into the office one day, merrily sacked. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, yeah, they formed a union pronto uh, and set about this massive... 512-day battle uh, to try to save their jobs. 
Uh, now, the film uh, has uh, some big names in the cast, most notably uh, a woman by the name of Kim Jong-un, who was a big feature in South Korean film and television for decades, you know, sort of, you know, dotted all over the screen, uh, you know, for, for many decades. Uh, she actually died uh, in 2017. In, in this film, she plays an older worker, one of the cleaners uh, in this uh, sort of hypermarket chain, uh, and she's on the cusp of retirement when this when this big strike breaks out. Uh, the film also stars uh, Yam Jung Ah, who is a lot of people would recognise from the blockbuster 2003 horror film uh, Tale of Two Sisters, in which she plays the the kind of wicked stepmother character. So in Cart, Yum plays a cashier and a mother of two who becomes really one of the leaders of the strike. Uh, she's kind of the central or one of the two central characters in it. Um, uh, in the end, so they have this big, I'm not going to, no, I won't be spoilers, but in the end, you know, they have this massive kind of year and a half battle um, and they have this sort of, I guess you'd call it an imperfect kind of victory of sorts. Uh, but the real lesson from the struggle, and I think it's a lesson this film understands and really celebrates, and this is what makes it such an important May Day film, is that the act of resisting itself is the key thing. You know, the film really allows ample space for these women workers to, you know, to talk to each other about their struggle and the impact that the struggle is having on their lives, about their hopes uh, and how, yeah, how this resistance is changing them and changing the way that they, you know, we see them standing taller, they, they, the way they look at each other changes, you know, they look at each other as, as comrades for the first time, there's this kind of humanity that, that breaks out of the kind of humdrum grind of, of this workplace once the, once the battle starts, you know. Um, and, of course, there's all sorts of challenges in their way. You know, they have to battle with the media, the politicians, the lawyers, all the rest of it. Their picket lines are, you know, repeatedly attacked by cops and thugs. There's a bunch of the workers who scab, of course. Um, you know, and in, in some of the most heartbreaking scenes, there's, you know, some of the workers go through, you know, they, they suffer personal loss and they go through moments of doubt, you know, moments where they're tested uh, and proved to be as human as, as any of us, you know, for better or for worse. Um, and as I said, you know, you can, one of the central themes in, in the film is, is about uh, women workers, you know, about gender in, in, the, in the class struggle. So most of the managers in the film are men and they're just vile characters, you know, revolting. Um, there are some men who, who also work for the company, but the workplace itself is quite segregated along gender lines and, and the men who work there are initially quite aloof from the strike. Um, but in scenes that I think we'll all recognise from countless other moments in history, not least of all the women garment workers of Myanmar today, uh, the courage and defiance of these women actually draws in some of the men. So, you know, some of these men join the struggle alongside them. One of the men actually gets elected to the strike committee, which is an interesting development and sort of worth noting in, in itself, and the film does that, but, but it shines, the film really shines because it doesn't sort of shift the focus too much onto him. You know, it's still, you know, it, it acknowledges this and then it, it continues to focus uh, on, on the women and allow those rank and women workers to be the centre of the story. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's a beautiful film. Um, and it was released just two years before the massive protest that, that brought down the Park government. And so it's kind of useful, perhaps, in hindsight, to, to think to just sort of contextualise it that way. Um, not that the situation after Park has become particularly better for South Korean workers, of course, but, but rather that kind of all of the worst elements of that sort of South Korean kind of hyper-exploitative capitalism that we know so well and that Park encapsulated, uh, that all of that has also been accompanied by explosive potential for mass, serious class struggle to break out. 
Um, you know, I, mean, I often think, you know, neoliberal economists in the 90s, in the 90s used to talk about the Asian tiger economy, you know, and South Korea was sort of their go-to example. But CART reminds us that, you know, it, to the extent there's an Asian tiger, uh, it's really the Asian working class. And, and, when, that, and when they move, uh, they shake the world. So definitely uh, quite, you know, adamant here that CART should be number one on our Mayday list and people should try to get hold of it however you can. Uh, as I said, you might not be able to find kind of legally it would be certainly not on any of the streaming services or the English language streaming services, but um, yeah, it is out there and it's worth the effort to track down. Mm, fantastic. <laughs> fantastic. And we're speaking with Liam Ward, lecturer in media and communication at RMIT, and he's giving us our top films for May Day. Yes. Number two, now this is one I doubt, I, this is the one I, I doubt there's many of your listeners who haven't seen this. Uh, would my, number, my second choice would be Pride. From 2014. Oh, yes, um, um, mm. yes we, did a 3C, film, we did a 3CR fundraiser for that film, Pride. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> oh, there you go. Yeah, it's it's a great film, and and uh, you know, assuming that so many of your listeners, because of the fundraiser and just because it, it did have a, a wider distribution, obviously than Cart, uh, assuming that so many the so many of you have probably seen it, um, we'll treat this as a sort of reminder to revisit this film. <laughs> the film you should revisit. Mm. Uh, for those of you who haven't seen it, uh, it's an important and moving account of the birth of lesbians and gays to support the miners. Um, the film makes a sort of timeless case for the power and the potential for solidarity and illustrates the ways that struggles of oppressed groups and the broader, you know, the broader workers' movement can, can feed into each other, can support each other and really forge you know, new ways of seeing our struggle, of understanding our struggle, of building our struggle. Um, you know, I mean, honestly, it's hard to think, I reckon, of many other films that have placed solidarity so centrally in their story. You know, it's not just a film about workers' struggle or about press groups. It is literally a film about solidarity. Mm. Uh, and so in that, in that way, it's quite unique and quite special. Uh, and you know, it does it in a joyous and moving fashion. You know, it's not some kind of drab lecture about, you know, <laughs> mm. Solidarity 101. You know, it's a joyous kind of party of a film in many ways. Uh, and it's a blast to watch and a real education in some of the basics of workers' struggle. Uh, and, and for that reason, yeah, it, it's perfect for me, though. Um, follows a bunch of ragtag London-based gay and lesbian activists, most of them who are also socialist, communist, revolutionaries of various stripes, uh, who set about organising to collect money for the striking miners who were at the time facing off against the Apache government in, in, the, in 84, 85. Um, so, yeah, many beautiful, powerful moments in the film. You know, I often think of that scene where the miners and their wives, you know, they're in the tavern and the miners and their wives just kind of spontaneously break into this rendition of the song Bread and Roses. Just a beautiful scene, and and you can see you know the, the impact it has on the on the lesbian and gay activists who come to the village. Um, and there's you know so many moments throughout the film where it, it sort of focuses on the um, it punctures the stereotypes about blue collar workers. Uh, in particular, the miners are shown to be you know to, to quickly understand I guess that they share a common struggle with the gay and lesbian activists who have just rocked up there. Um, and in fact, the film creates some cinematic tension by kind of drawing out this dynamic of initial mistrust. It is interesting though, Mike Jackson, who was one of the who was one of these LGSM activists, um, is played in the film by the wonderful Joe Gilgan, who there's something such, such, so fascinating about him as an actor, I could watch him reading, you know, the back of a muesli packet and still be mm-hmm. riveted. Um, but the real Mike Jackson uh, spoke in Melbourne at this year's Marxism concert, uh, conference um, mm-hmm. via Zoom, of course, because of the travel bans. And one of the points that he made in reference to the film, and particularly this scene of, you know, these kind of things of initial mistrust between the miners and, 
uh, towards the lesbian and gay activists. Um, I made the point that actually the film over overstates that for dramatic effect. You know, it's sort of you have to have some tension for the film, you know, because it has to be because <laughs> mm-hmm. cinema, you know. Uh, but he says, look, in real life, uh, as soon as we rocked up, the miners just, you know, welcomed us with open arms, and, uh-huh. and they got it immediately. They immediately said, yeah, we understand what's happening here. We understand the solidarity, and we appreciate it. You know, so yeah, really amazing story. Um, so that would be my second choice to go back and and. Uh, investigate Pride, rediscover Pride. My third film for Mayday uh, would be, it's not directly about workers' struggle, but again, bear with me, it would be The Wind That Shakes the Barley by Ken Loach mm-hmm. from 2006. Uh, Ken Loach, of course, a regular winner of prizes at, at you know, prestigious festivals like Cannes and so on, but for some mysterious reason, it remains incredibly difficult to actually see his films in Melbourne outside of a few weeks uh, it, it, when a film opens, you know. Um, certainly, they don't even appear on SBS or, or any of the streaming services mm-hmm. for the most part. Anyway, so true to form, I had to trundle off to the Nova in, uh, you know, in that short window of a couple of weeks in 2006 to see The Wind That Shakes the Barley. And I'm sure a lot of us did, and a lot of your listeners would have. Um, perhaps mm-hmm. some of us managed to get it on disc in the meantime, but yeah, it's hard to get. Um, anyway, the, yeah, the film focuses on this period in the lead up to the petition of Ireland. Um, not many films made about that period, I guess. There's Michael Collins, obviously, is another one. But within that very small catalogue, uh, I have no hesitation in saying that The Wind That Shakes the Barley is certainly my favourite and the best. And uh, it's because, you know, being Ken Loach, even though the film is about, you know, the Civil War and partition and the rest of it, it's, of course, from a kind of socialist working class perspective. Um, and so there's, you know, there's all these classic kind of Ken Loach political debates between characters, which, of course, I love. Uh, and... You know, the heart of the film, the genius of it really, is the way that it encapsulates this kind of whole struggle in the relationship between two brothers who are both in the IRA, uh, played by Killian Murphy and Patrick Delaney. And um, it sort of presents, you know, this kind of heartbreaking story, really, of the way that the petition um, and the concessions uh, that, that some sides made is kind of manifest in the division between the two brothers. You know, one of the brothers, the older one, uh, you know, capitulates and supports partition and is sort of thereby compelled to start treating his younger brother as the enemy, mm. um, you know, with tragic consequences. But, you know, the heroism of the holdout you know, is, is really inspiring too. You know, those people who refuse to accept partition, who continue to hold true to this vision of a free, united, independent and socialist island, you know, and we get these great little fleeting references to James Connolly and the Ethan Rebellion and all the rest of it. So, you know, a really powerful, wonderful film. Mm. Um, now, as I said, my third and fourth ones are not actually films. Uh, I've settled on a couple of TV series, so bear with me. The first one that I want to point out, this one is a, probably a little bit controversial, but uh, it's called At the Gate of Heavenly Peace, directed by Richard Gordon and Carmen Hinton in 1995. It's a long kind of five-hour, I think it was made for PBS in America originally, um, big five-hour sort of five-part doco, or two-part doco for five hours about the Tiananmen Square uprising. And um, it's worth seeing, I guess, not so much much for the analysis of the filmmakers, because I think the analysis of the whole thing is a little bit flawed, but but what they've done is captured amazing scenes uh, of this kind of unfolding, uh, you know, revolutionary moment, this uprising that took place. And, um, you know, of course, you get interviews with a lot of the student activists and you get all these amazing scenes of that. And it's gone down in history, of course, as a student uprising. But, um, again, being the International Workers' Day, 
one of the things that this film does is it has a bunch of interviews with uh, ordinary like factory workers and teachers, you know, workers in from Beijing who participated in this uprising. Um, and in particular, there's a couple of them, I think one's a teacher and one's a nurse, uh, who were um, founding members of a group called the Beijing Autonomous Workers Union, which was an independent trade union uh, that formed in the, in the, at the height of this uprising. Uh, these workers realised that they needed to organise themselves, they needed to form a union and, and work independently of the sort of yellow unions that were controlled by the state and, and try to intervene into uh, this, this you know, rebellion. And, yeah, I mean, just for, for those things alone, seeing those workers reflecting back a few years later on, on what they did and what they were trying to do, it's really kind of magical and something that doesn't often get spoken about in relation to Tiananmen Square. Um, so, yeah, worth seeing for that. Also has amazing scenes of, uh, you know, when I, when I call it this kind of nascent revolution or this sort of unfolding, almost revolutionary sort of moment that's unfolding here, uh, there's scenes where uh, the soldiers are sent in because, of course, we all know how it ended in, you know, horrible bloodshed and, and you know, um, the uprising was you know, literally drowned in blood. But what is often not mentioned is that in the, in the, the days leading up to that, uh, the government tried to send in soldiers multiple times, and every time they did, um, the workers and sort of ordinary people of Beijing would physically stop the soldiers from progressing into the square you know, and, and would harangue them. And so they have footage in this, in this doco of... Uh, people haranguing the soldiers, how dare you come in here with your guns? You cannot shoot the students. Get out of here. Uh, and, and it works. You know, they two or three times they actually turn these soldiers back. And so, yeah, this really powerful revolutionary moment that was caught on film and we're seeing for that, that mm-hmm. state of heavenly peace. Mm, great. And My then... final one, mm-hmm. is, which is also a TV series, is called The Spanish Civil War. It was uh, produced for, I think, Granada or one of those, like, British... Uh, uh, networks in the early 80s, six-part TV series uh, uh, released in 1983, actually, uh, directed by John Blake and David Hart. Um, but the reason I think this one is special is not, again, for the whole kind of six-part series of it, but one of the episodes, I think it might be the fourth one, episode four, episode five, you can actually find this on YouTube, or it sort of appears and then disappears and then reappears on YouTube, so it's worth kind of checking. Um, one of the episodes is called Inside the Revolution, and it is amazing. They go, they have uh, all this footage from, I mean, it focuses exactly where you would want it to focus, right? It goes to Barcelona, 1936, and it talks about, you know, workers controlling the city, what it looked like, if, what they did, how they did it. There's footage uh, of workers-controlled work, uh, factories, um, CNT, FAA, FAI, flags everywhere, uh, and, again, interviews with participants. And since it was made in the in the late seventies or the early eighties, you know, the people are now or at that stage you know, old. Um, you couldn't make this film anymore, I guess, because a bunch of them would be dead, unfortunately. But but yeah, in the eighties, there's these old people reflecting on what they did fifty years earlier uh, in their youth and this amazing workers' uprising that they were part of. Um, and you can still see the passion in their eyes, and you can hear it in the voice, and they say, you know, this was the, the most most powerful thing we've ever been involved in. You know, there's you know one woman who sums it up for me. She says. Um, uh, you know, she talks about not just how they were organising you know, the workers' control of the city and all the rest of it, but she talks about the parties, you know, the singing, like the joyous kind of celebrations, the concerts. And uh, I never forget this kind of line burning my memory from her. She says, it was an extraordinary Barcelona. There'd never been so much singing. To be young, uh, to be young and a woman in Barcelona in those days was just heaven. 
And, and I just think that's, you know, if you want to know what, yeah, the kind of liberatory experience of, of a workers' revolution, then, yeah, this little episode of this long-forgotten TV series really captures it. So that would be my fifth uh, recommendation, that people try to get their hands on um, on the Spanish Civil War. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, Liam, thank you very much for um, compiling your top and making it only five. <laughs> to five. I'm sure there's lots, more, many more films there. Um, but your top films and TV series to watch to celebrate May Day. That's been fantastic. Thank you so much. No worries. Thanks for having me, Linda, and happy May Day. Happy May Day to you too, Liam. And that was on screen's uh, May Day broadcast where they spoke to Liam Ward about his top picks for films celebrating workers' rights. And now Field of Dreams by Beaches.
and that was Field of Dreams by Beaches. And now we have Nazari Dickerson on the phone. And so Nazari is a writer, producer and director. And she's written, produced and directed a new theatre production called Nyonk, Giver of Life at La Mama for the Yerenboy Festival. And um, Nazari, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah, no problem. Sorry for that one. But um, you're here with us now. And... Nazri, can you first just tell me and our listeners at home a little bit about yourself and your journey to the theatre? Sure, yeah. Um, uh, so my name is Nazari Dickerson. Um, I'm a Noongar Burmese woman originally from Western Australia. So um, I was raised for the first part of my life in Perth and then I moved to Adelaide but um, started theatre quite young with um, an Aboriginal theatre company called Yuriyakin in Perth and then uh, went on to study at uh, Adelaide Arts Centre and then um, have continued working since then. So I've been in the theatre for about about 25 years or so. <laughs> wow. And is Neonk Giver of Life one of your first productions or have you been kind of building up to this? Yeah, I've definitely been building up to it. Um, I guess I've been um, a theatre maker for more than half my career, but, um, yeah, have generally been a collaborator on other works. And this is the first time I've done, you know, written my own work and I'm directing Yunk as well. And how did that feel? Oh, it's it's a really amazing achievement for me. Um, but just the journey that I've been on in terms of, um, you know, connect, reconnecting with with elements of of culture and language has been just a beautiful journey. And um, yeah, it's proven to be a really meaningful project for me. Um, mm. Probably the most meaningful I've ever done. Wow, and. It's going to be at La Mama Theatre for Year and Boy Festival. Um, I believe it kicks off on the 9th of May. So can you just tell us a little bit about the show, Neonk, Giver of Life? What kind of themes do you explore? Yeah, so we um, the play is, is centred around the Tannen family, the women in the Tannen family, so three generations from their family. And it's really focused on the strength and resilience that these women have to forge on and, and continue on as a family, um, you know, with love and humour, despite the circumstances the government's put them in. So we deal with themes of um, stolen generation, uh, violence against women, and, you know, the... Um, the welfare system. Mm. And how did you um, go about establishing these characters? So I think you've got Missy, Sally and Sherry. Can you talk to us a little bit about these characters and how they came to be? Yeah, so um, my mum was stolen at age two from her family along with five other siblings. Um, so that's always been uh, um, something that's close to my heart and wanting to tell stories about the experiences of people who were stolen from families. Um, so a lot of the content in the play comes from real-life experience of myself as, uh, you know, someone that's experienced what it's like to have a parent that was stolen, um, but also, you know, through my work in the community, um, knowing people that have also been removed or stolen and um, how they found ways to reconnect to community, to culture and how they've maintained um, their strength of spirit. Mm. And you, yeah, it, it seems to be one of the big themes is that intergenerational 
resilience, I guess, that's been formed from trauma. And so what kind of relationships do the characters all have with each other? Yeah, um, definitely not uh, not a traditional traditional family setup. Um, you know, there's um, a lot of strained relationships between the women, and then there's also a lot of healing that they have had to do in order to come back together as a family. Mm. Um, certainly, we see you know a, a generation jump with uh, you know the youngest member of the family being raised by the oldest member as opposed to her own parent, um, and that's you know, all as a result of being indoctrinated into this um, this system. Mm. And do you think that the theatre plays, like, and just in the arts in itself, plays a really important role in showcasing stories like this and exploring the kind of resilience that the Tannin family, these three women, actually are going through together? Uh, yeah, I think it's it's really powerful. Um, I guess the the beautiful thing about theatre is that, for one, you're choosing to come and watch it, um, and secondly, it's more about you know watching a, watching actors you know with their craft on stage, and also getting this um, added layer of really important information. And definitely, it gives us a snapshot into what life is like for Aboriginal women in Australia, and the bravery and courage it takes to actually to become a mother and know that you're bringing your child into a society that has some pretty horrible systems that definitely were not built to empower Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Mm. And how's the experience been with La Mama for the moment? Um, how has it been with the all-female production crew and, yeah, the support that you get sort of sharing this story? Um, yeah, it's been a fantastic journey so far. I've really felt the love from the theatre community, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander arts community here in Melbourne, and and definitely La Mama and Yurumboy, um, you know, all our funding bodies. We've just felt a lot of support. Having an all-female production crew is amazing. Mm. I have not worked, um, I've not worked on a show like this in years where it's like, yeah, all the all the all the women um, doing all the things and. Yeah, it's really empowering um, yeah. to know that we are doing this, you know, standing on the shoulders of our foremothers and um, definitely feeling blessed to walk in the path that these trailblazers have created for us. I love that. That sounds like a beautiful experience as a, as a theatre maker just to have that support around you. Um, and what can what can our listeners expect, firstly, from opening night if they want to go and when can they they see you yeah so um opening night is there's there's many layers here so it's opening on mother's day sunday the 9th at la mama um and then it'll run through till friday the, the 14th of may um there's a matinee show on tuesday but it's 7 p.m every night and i think Opening night's actually sold out, so you'll have to go for wow. another night during the week. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, tickets are selling fast. Um, and <laughs> Getting it's quick. It's going be a really great show, so, yeah. Amazing. And can and can you firstly, actually, can you just let us know, what does nyonk mean? Nyonk is a, the nyunga word we use for um, mother, but it also, the, the direct translation is um, nyonk, the earth, the sun, giver of life. So all of those things are our mother. 
So we called the land our mother as well, and so that's why it's the same word that gets used for your actual biological mother and the earth that you come from. Wow. Beautiful. Nazri, I can't wait to see it. I'm going to jump on and buy myself a ticket today. Um, thank Absolutely. you so much for joining us. And, yeah, wish you all the best. Can't wait to see what else you do. No problem. Thank you so much thank- for having me. Thank you. Thanks, Nazri. And so, listeners, yeah, get onto the La Mama website. Have a look at um, at what you and boys also doing elsewhere. But that was Nazari Dickerson, writer, producer and director of Nyonk, Giver of Life. Um, I think that's going to be a fascinating show. I can't wait to see the characters on stage. Missy, her mum Sally and her nan Sherry. So it should be a really interesting, um, yeah, piece of production. Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards, plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. Oh, oh. 
been 30 years since the Royal Commission released its final report into Aboriginal deaths in custody. Things have actually got worse, and there's still no justice. Come along to the National Day of Action. Stop Aboriginal deaths in custody. Black Lives Matter, Saturday the 10th of April, 1pm on the steps of Parliament House, Melbourne. Join us in the streets to demand justice and self-determination. See you there. I'm Edwin. This is 3CR Breakfast. Today we're talking to Dr. Jacoba Brush from the Law Council on challenging and eradicating sexual harassment in the workforce. This story starts with the release of the Respect at Work Sexual Harassment National Inquiry Report in December of last year, and it was presented by the Sex Discrimination Commissioner, Kate Jenkins. The report confirmed what most women already know. Sexual harassment is rife in the workforce with 33% of the people who have been in the workforce in the previous five years saying that they have experienced some form of sexual harassment, women being more likely than men. In response, the Law Council put together the National Action Plan to reduce sexual harassment in the Australian legal profession. Jacoba, could you tell us a little bit about um, your first impressions on the report and the process of setting up this national plan? Um, sure. Well, the report was very welcomed. You know, the Sex Discrimination Act was written in 1984. Um, a lot of your listeners wouldn't even have been born then, and I was at school. So life has changed a lot since 1984. And frankly, there was an expectation even in my in my own early days as a law student that you just had to tolerate bad behaviour. You know, that's a long time ago now. So I'm, you know, the report from um, uh, Kate Jenkins last year was most welcomed. You know, we've got to call out bad behaviour for what it is. It's not a matter of saying, oh, he or she had too much to drink at the Christmas party. No, we're not minimising anymore. So what happened then? It took about a year, but policy does take time. Then um, a couple of weeks ago, the government announced its response. Um, it's what they call, I'd want a really high level response. So there's no details yet, but it's got a really, as far as I'm concerned, a really welcomed open line. It, so this is the government's response. Sexual harassment is unacceptable in any context, whether it's in the workplace or elsewhere. Absolutely. Um, all people must feel safe at work and all workplaces must be free of sexual harassment. Absolutely. So um, what will be interesting, though, to see what's the detail, what's the legislation going to look like? So there's, you know, 55 recommendations. They're agreed in full, in part or noted, um, but we will, we'll have our policy people out and the Law Council is filled with lawyers. We will be looking at um, the proposed amendments to the Sex Discrimination Act. And this I find particularly interesting because, you know, jumping to the government's response, and as you said, they said they, in their statement they said they agreed wholly in part or in principle to the 55 recommendations. So for a government that has uh, somewhat of a dodgy or, or a bit of a mixed track record with women, uh, especially, you know, being brought up this year and in conversation this year, uh, we're kind of, I, I wanted to get your opinion on what sort of gaps there are in Australia's legal system or policy environment that 
the government could be looking at to to address this sexual sure. harassment? Well, it was very welcome to hear um, Michaelia Cash, the Attorney General and the Prime Minister, saying it will apply to um, politicians as well and the reforms will apply to judges. So there's been this, um, and one of the things you mentioned, our national action plan. So one of the things we were very keen to um, advocate for was amending the Sexual Discrimination Act to make it clear that it applies to judges. It applies to barristers like myself, because I'm self-employed. Um, it applies, let me give you, give you the example that I think highlights the lack of clarity. Let's say senior partner of a law firm doesn't say some horrible things to me as a barrister, and in the presence of a junior solicitor, I can't do anything because it's not a workplace relationship. I work for myself. And then the next complexity is what if the junior lawyer actually isn't admitted and is doing, um, is doing work experience? Not clear where they're covered either. So we've been advocating when we had our national action plan, advocating for amendments to the Sex Discrimination Act to make it clear that it applies to everybody in every workplace. So um, we're, as I said, delighted to see the sentiment in the government's response. Um, I think the saying goes, the devil's often in the detail though. So we'll be watching that very keenly. Jumping quickly to your plan and the, the National Action Plan for the Law Council, there was this real emphasis on identifying the toxic cultures that build the environment where sexual harassment occurs in the workplace. So um, in the report, it listed things like hierarchical, male-dominated, and also less obvious ones like um, social, commercial, and competitive work environments. And it said, you know, all of these sorts of individualistic or sort of competitive environments can create uh, power imbalances, and we can see sexual harassment there. Do you think that perhaps more cultural lens also needs to be in involved in the government's response here and reflected in its, its policy and legislative? Well, I think so. And because and, you hit the nail on the head with the power imbalance. Wherever there's power imbalance, there is the opportunity for um, harassment, bullying, that sort of thing. But I tell you what, I watched um, something the Queensland Law Society has rolled out. So I'm a barrister, but the, the, the lawyer, the, the uh, solicitor branch of my profession They've rolled out this excellent resource. They've got, I assume, actors, or if they're lawyers, they're incredibly good at, at acting, and they just do a journey of a firm. And you see the little comment that, that no one takes notice of, but it, it's incredibly thought-provoking and incredibly powerful, and I congratulate the Queensland Law Society for doing it. it, it it's, um, I, I gather they're, they're displaying it to a whole range of firms around Australia because you see the creep. Oh, I mean, and I mean, I mean, creep both in terms of how the comments get worse, but you also see the creep who's, you know, um, the one that doesn't understand boundaries, doesn't understand what's appropriate and inappropriate. And in that one, the woman who's the victim, who's the target of the creep, um, she eventually has a go at him and calls him out. And it's very interesting how that all transpires as well. So I think. Um, you're right about the culture. You're absolutely right about the power imbalance issue. I think we need eyes more open to the innocuous little comment that then becomes the next, the next, and the the um, getting it before it goes any further. But you know what the Rolls-Royce would be? The Rolls-Royce would be if the government's part of the report is about prevention. 
Yeah. Okay. You know, there's a difficulty with enforcement. How do you enforce against politicians who, who were elected? How do you enforce against judges who have tenure? So we'll be very keen to watch that. But wouldn't it be great if prevention became um, the cure, if you like, as opposed to having to work out enforcement? And I kind of wanted to just jump on this with a few other, I suppose, more legal recommendations that perhaps the public don't know about within this, uh, within the Respect at Work report itself and that the government's responded to. So the report recommends, uh, number 15, recommends that the Australian government ratifies the ILO Convention 190. I was wondering if I could put you on the spot and get you <laughs> while we've got a, you know, lawyer on the line. Um, tell us what, what's the significance of this? Well, it's an interesting, we don't have a position on that yet, the Law Council, because, you know, we, we have a whole range of people who give me advice and they're all looking at this report now. So I can't tell you what our on recommendation 15 is going to be. Um, but, you know, that we're having the discussion. You know, it's the International Labor Organization, obviously, okay. the, the ILO, but there are tensions between um, employers, employees, between how unions see things should go, how professional associations see things go. But you know what? We're having a discussion. Mm. And good mm. policy, good policy comes out of consultation and discussing things. So that's an interesting, it's curious. Why did you pick that one? My turn to ask a question because that's a curious one to pick out. Interesting one. Look, it was one of the first ones which, reading through the report, and I did go through the 55, I was kind of like, okay, I get ILO, but I wanted to know why that had been selected out and what, what the significance of it was. Because I know with these treaties, uh, not sorry, with treaties, but with these you know ratifications, sometimes they can be non-binding or they can be binding. And I wanted to know yeah. what position that would put a government in place and if they were to agree to that, because it has been recommended by uh, the report. Yeah. So, yeah, it was just one of those ones. Treaties are interesting. Mm. Yeah, well, treaties are interesting. You can ratify it. You know, a treaty has no force and power in its own mm. right. You know, so you actually don't sue under the Convention on the Rights of Women or whatever. But that's, you know, the Sex Discrimination Act is a good example. So Australia in 19, whatever it was, 80 something or other ratified that treaty. And then the next step is, are they going to import it into domestic law? Because international oh, okay. law is lovely, but you can't mm. sue under it. And so you see then in the Sex Discrimination Act, you see the reference to the convention. So it imports the convention into our laws. So you can, you know, you can complain, you can you can take whatever actions that are allowed for under the Act. So that's the thinking with the ILO issue, ratifying it. And then the next question, which I don't have a position on yet, as I said, the awesome. next question, though, is does it get brought into domestic law? Okay. Um, kind of rounding out the interview, and I, I suppose last kind of ideas I wanted to get your opinion on was what do you think is on the agenda or the main gaps in policy and legislation that, again, we, we you know, might might need to be simplified or, you know, have a bit more clarity around for, for victims? Because if we're looking to make it one preventative and also two victim-centred, uh, yeah, what, where do you think we could start with that? Well, it'll be really interesting to see how, I mean, the promise is the process is going to be simplified mm. and that'd be terrific. But, you know, we'll wait and see the legislation because right now I can't tell you with certainty whether judges are covered or not. Are they employers? 
Yeah, okay. Who okay. is their associate employed by? So the Act, you know, um, really groundbreaking back in 1984, really groundbreaking stuff. I think it was Minister Susan Ryan, I think our first, you know, first Minister for Women, who, who um, heralded through. Great for its time, but we need a better emphasis. For example, um, whether you've got action under the Sex Discrimination Act depends on the relationship between the people and the workplace. Let's simplify it. Um, the complaints mechanism is not terribly clear for some people. So let's simplify that. And we also, I think, have to acknowledge that some people, and you're right in your intro, it's 33% of women, but also there's 26% of men, which is a statistic we ought to not forget either. Um, sometimes they just want to be heard, don't want action to be taken, be heard. So I'm, I'll, we'll be very keen that the victim um, is able to um, own the process, if I can call that. If they don't want to, if they just want to tell someone, that's fine. We should respect that. If they want to complain, that's fine. We should respect that too. So, from what I'm getting from you, is it's a lot about this is really exciting stuff because it's going to put a lot of labels on the different roles and responsibilities people have around this and give people in the workforce a bit more of a compass in navigating how to bring up these sort of, as you said, the really small comments to the that that have the potential to escalate. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Jacoba Brash, for coming on and talking to us more about this. Um, it'll be interesting to see. <laughs> well, I tell you what, I will check in with you once we know more, because as, as you said, devil's in the detail and the government at the moment's provided a very great overarching statement. So it'll be interesting to see what outcomes come out of it. Well, let's have a chat then. I look forward to it. Thanks, Ard. Wonderful. Thank you. You've got being read down to an ud. You think you're a genius, you drive me up the wall. You're a regular original, no at all. Oh, oh, you think you're special. Oh, oh, you think you're something else. Okay, so you're a rocket scientist. That don't impress me much. So you've got the brains, but have you got the touch? Now don't get me wrong, yeah, I think you're alright But that won't keep me warm in the middle of the night That don't impress me much I never knew a guy who carried a mirror in his pocket And a comb up his sleeve just in case, and all that extra whole gel in your hair out of locket. Cause heaven forbid it should fall out of place. Oh, you think you're special? Oh, you think it's something else? Okay, so you're Brad Pitt. That don't impress me. 